Before introducing our today's speaker, I would like to ask Professor Timothy Garton Ash to offer some introductory remarks about Leszek Kowakowski, who is essentially the patron of our lecture series. Thank you. Well, it's a very great pleasure to say a few words about Leszek Kowakowski name to this lecture. And let me start by thanking Dr. Tamara Kowakowska for uh, allowing us to name the lecture after Lesha Kowakowski, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us this evening. Uh, Lesha Kowakowski was the most important Polish scholar ever to have been on the permanent faculty of Oxford University. And Leszek himself would probably immediately have found some medieval Latin scholar who wandered from the territory of Poland to, to Oxford and disputed the claim, but, but we know that this is the case. He actually spent nearly half his life in Oxford, having been, in effect, driven out of the People's Republic of Poland um, after the events of 1968, uh, and having himself escaped with relief from the People's Republic of Berkeley in California. Uh, he found refuge in All Souls College, Oxford, which no one, I think, uh, would dare to describe as a People's Republic, um, uh, and where he spent um, the rest of his academic life, although also Chicago and elsewhere. Like many continental European intellectuals, Leszek Kowakowski um, uh, uh, regarded Britain with a kind of um, affectionate, benign, humorous, semi-detachment. Uh, he found it a, a delightful, somewhat amusing place. Uh, some of his early letters to Czesław Miłosz describe the, the rain, the ill-fitting windows, um, the strange manners, the Church of England, which he always found a very entertaining institution, so long as it wasn't confused with true religion. <laughs> he once said, Britain is an island, Oxford is an island um, within Britain, also college is an island within Oxford, and I am an island within also. <laughs> Um, but he also, of course, very much appreciated the academic freedom that he found here, uh, the tolerance, the decency, the intellectual atmosphere. He was one of the most learned people I have ever met. Uh, like Isaiah Berlin, uh, he could quote at the drop of a hat long passages of philosophy and poetry in several different languages. He had the most wonderful sense of humor which comes through in a lot of his writing. Um, one of his favorite, one, one of my favorite uh, tropes of his is in one of his essays he invented a conversion agency which for fee would undertake to convert you from any faith or ideology to any other faith or ideology. Um, the fee was according to the difficulty of conversion. So to convert you to the Church of England, for example, or liberal reform Judaism, very cheap. 
<laughs> the virtue to militant Wahhabi Islam is slightly more expensive. This is absolutely characteristic of, of, of Lechek. You also have a quality which he describes in one of his essays as Gaudium de Veritatis, a medieval Latin phrase, drawing from truth. One of his most characteristic qualities was the sheer intellectual delight of discovering the truth, however difficult or paradoxical that truth was. His work in the nearly 40 years he was based at Oxford, I would say had four, simplifying greatly, four major strands. The first was the main currents of Marxism. His most, certainly his largest and most famous work, which he started in Poland but completed at All Souls, we actually had a wonderful presentation in this very room of the new edition of the main Counts of Marxism, published by Norton in 2005, uh, a packed room full of Polish students at Oxford. Um, and it was, I think, particularly for this that he garnered this extraordinary bouquet of prizes, the Erasmus Prize, the Tocqueville Prize, the Jerusalem Prize, the MacArthur Award, the Kluger Prize, and the list goes on. Actually, by the time he'd been in Oxford for a few years, he wasn't particularly or mainly interested in Marxism. He had, as they say, been there and done that. His major intellectual interest was religion. And a large, the largest part of his work done in Oxford concerned religion in the broadest sense. Works like the Fontana book on religion, metaphysical horror, God owes us nothing, a book only recently rediscovered and just published in Polish on Jesus Christ, um, written in French. So it's particularly fitting that under the auspices of the program on modern Poland, we have a doctoral student working on Leszek Korkowski and religion. The third major thread of his work is what I might call literary philosophical essays. Korkowski was a wonderful writer, not just a philosopher, but a writer. Essays, fables, satires, parables, poems, with titles like my correct views on everything, or how to be a conservative liberal socialist, a wonderful essay. If you want to get a taste of this work, uh, and you're reading only in English, there is a Penguin volume entitled, Is God Happy? A selection of essays introduced by his daughter, Agnieszka Karkowska, who also has translated a lot of his work wonderfully, is God happy, you will get a taste of that wonderful literary, essayistic talent. But ladies and gentlemen, the last great thread of his work, actually his life uh, in Oxford, was Poland. Thomas Mann once said, where I am is Germany. And the same might be said of Leszek Krakowski, where I am is Poland. And wherever he was, he was in Poland and Poland was with him. 
he made a major contribution, even from abroad, even from exile, to the discussions of the democratic opposition in Poland, essays like the theses on hope and hopelessness. He was a, a member of CORE, the Workers' Defense Committee. Uh, he was constantly engaged in matters Polish and in the latter years, after 1989, of course, traveled frequently to Poland, where he was celebrated quite literally as a king, not just metaphorically, because he had been somewhat um, in jest crowned the king of Central Europe by a few of us and some friends, and there was a ceremony in Warsaw where he was actually crowned, physically crowned, as the king of Central Europe, along with his queen and his princess. Um, so he was present in Poland through all those years that he lived in Oxford and, of course, engaged very seriously with Polish politics and Polish intellectual life. And one of the most moving things in his last years at Oxford, when we already had quite a lot of Polish students at Oxford, was the time that he would devote to Polish students to see groups of Polish students literally sitting at his feet and uh, him engaging with them and them with him. And so it is, it's not just fitting that the major keynote lecture of the program on modern Poland is the Kołakowski lecture. It would be absurd if a program on modern Poland at Oxford did not have a Kowakowski lecture, I am sure he would have been absolutely fascinated by the subject of today's lecture by our very distinguished lecturer whom Dr. Kimnitsky is about to introduce, and I hope um, that our lecturer will perhaps imagine Leszek Kowakowski sitting in the front row and listening to great attention to his lecture. Thank you. illuminating uh, remarks. Uh, I am extremely honored uh, today to introduce our first lecturer in the lecture series. Uh, Darius Tola is a historian, professor at the Institute of Political Studies of the Polish Academy of Sciences. He's also a fellow at the Center for uh, Migration Research uh, at the University of Warsaw. And since March 2014, he has been the director of POLIN, the Museum of the History of Polish Jews. Um, uh, Darius Stola has published 10 books and more than 100 articles on the history of Polish-Jewish relations, the communist regime in Poland, and international migrations in the 20th century. And I'm going to read you titles of his books, uh, both in Polish uh, and in English. Uh, so that I can actually uh, test my uh, translating skills. Uh, I will start with Nadzieja i Zagłada, Hope and Extermination, uh, which came out in 1995. Uh, Kampania antysyjonistyczna w Polsce, 1967-1968. The Anti-Zionist Campaign in Poland, 1967-1968, published in the year 2000. Kraj bez wyjścia. 
Migracje z Polski 1948-1989. A country without exit? With a question mark. Migrations from Poland 1948-1989, uh, which came out in 2010. Patterns of migration in Central Europe, um, uh, written together with Professor Claire Wallace. Uh, PRL Trwanie i Zmiana, Polish People's Republic, Continuance and Change, written together with uh, Marcin Zaremba. PZPR jako Machina Władzy, Polish United Workers' Party as Powerhouse, written together with Krzysztof Persak in 2012. Dariusz Stolach has lectured uh, in history for many years and served on advisory boards of several Polish and international uh, institutions and journals. Please give a warm welcome to our speaker today, Professor Dariusz. The title doesn't tell you much except that it's about Poland in plural, several Polands, and one century. The one century is the 20th century. Uh, uh, and it's slightly misleading, because when preparing to this lecture, I realized that there were at least three Polands, and probably six or seven of them. Poles follow the French in uh, giving numbers to the republics. At present, we have the Third Republic, Trzecia Rzeczpospolita. Uh, but this is not the Third Republic in the 20th century. Actually, the first in counting is the old pre-partitions, pre-19th century noble republic, which ended up in, in late 18th century. The second one is the interwar Republic of Poland. And the third one is Rzeczpospolita Polska, which began in, at the end of 1989. You may know that there is something missing in between, and this is the People's Republic of Poland, which was called the Republic, but again, following French, we don't give a number to this country, like the French don't give a number to the state of Vichy, which is not a republic in the French counting. So I will focus on the three major Polands that existed in the 20th century, and uh, uh, especially on the territorial and population aspects of a country. Uh, my understanding of the word country in English is that it's slightly more political than the word pays or land in the continental languages. I understand that country in English is more a state than just a region of a specific culture, history, uh, or economy. Uh, Poland in the 20th century, or the terri historical territory of Poland in the 20th century, was an incredible natural laboratory of state-making, state-unmaking, and state-remaking, which may give us some interesting insights into the general questions of making the states, and especially the relation between the population, territory, and statehood. And Leszek Kołakowski, among his many works, he has also written exactly on this topic. In 1987, he has published a tale, a fable, on war among the lemurs, I hope I pronounce it well, small mammals living in southeastern Asia. So, small and big lemurs have been at wars since a meeting some 30 years before the publication of this article. Uh, and the meeting started with a small lemur saying, the land of the lemurs is a great and magnificent country. Why so? Because lemurs live in it. And Lemuria is called Lemuria because lemurs live in it. Then a large lemur, 
got up very angry and said, it's untrue that Lemuria is so called because lemurs live in it. On the contrary, lemurs are called lemurs because they live in Lemuria. And anyone who says otherwise is a traitor to Lemuria. So in this short story, Kowakowski grasped the nexus of population, territory, and identity. Uh, lemurs don't live in Eastern Europe. So it was not a symbol of any specific people or nation of Eastern Europe. But it had uh, very obvious resonance in Polish political debates beginning in the late early, late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, so let me start chronologically. Uh, well, first, this map for your introduction. This is a, a simplified map of changing territories of Poland in the 20th century. I will come back to it several times. What is important for us at this moment is that you have a territory that in the 19th century belonged to the Prussian, then German state. The blue one, which was a part of the Habsburg Empire, called Galicia. And then two parts that belonged to the Russian Empire. One which was directly incorporated into the Russian Empire, and the other which was a, a relict of the old Polish kingdom, which I will come back to in a second. So we begin the 20th century without Poland. There is no Poland. And actually, one of the French writers of the late 19th century could say that the action of his drama is taking place in Poland. That means nowhere. There was a name for it, but there was no state. So it existed as a country in the continental meaning of the term. There was a pays, a land, but not a state. Uh, however, at a closer look, at a closer look, we realized that legally, legally, in 1914, there was a kingdom of Poland, largely forgotten. Uh, it was forgotten because a state of this name was established at the uh, 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 Vienna Conference following the Napoleonic Wars, it was a part of the Russian Empire and each consecutive Tsar of Russia was the Kingdom of Poland. However, following the failed uprising of, of 1830 and then 1863, Russian rulers gradually abolished almost completely the autonomy of the Kingdom of Poland. However, the name remained on the books and there were some legal differences between the rest of the empire and the uh, and the Polish kingdom. And that was uh, a useful argument for the Germans and Austrians who occupied the territory of the Kingdom of Poland, this one. In 1915, they took it from the Russian hands and decided to use the Polish card in the international relations. And the reason was quite simple, the bloodshed on the Western Front and the need for manpower, for cannon fodder. So already in 1916, in the fall of 1916, German and Austrian governors declared, declared that the rulers would like to establish an autonomous kingdom of Poland, remaining in fraternal union with the Habsburg and, and German empires. Uh, they established a three-person regency. There was no king at that time. Well, <laughs> Leszek Kowakowski was not there to be appointed. Uh, it gave this country a name. It gave it a kind of government, very limited government. They didn't define the borders at that time. So it was unclear what are the borders of this Poland. But there was a legal entity, of course, recognized only by the central powers, by nobody else. So this is this, this first Poland of the 20th century. Uh, it had a currency. 
and you can see the currency had a white eagle, the symbol of the old Polish kingdom. It also had an army in construction, properly called Polnische Wehrmacht. Uh, the project failed, it was quite unsuccessful, but it was very important because this way the Germans and Austrians opened the bidding process. Who will offer more to the Polish national movement? And then other rulers, beginning with the revolutionary Russian government, American presidents, then the French government, gradually were expanding the declarations of, on the likeliness and desirability of a Polish state that should emerge after the war. And uh, in particular, President Wilson, among his 14 points in January 1918, the 13th one was, he declared that an independent Polish state shall be erected, which should include the territories populated by indisputably Polish populations. So President Wilson belonged to the small lemurs. He believed that Poland is a country inhabited by indisputably Polish population. Oh, sorry. Uh, after a long struggle, which I'm not going to give you all details because it's very complex, there emerged a Poland finally. Uh, it finally, in the borders which you can see, emerged in 1921-1922. After several wars with virtually all the neighbors and the key decisions made in Versailles by the great powers in relation to Germany. So, uh, Polish patriots claimed that Poland was reborn at that moment. However, uh, it had uh, um, the similarity to the old Polish kingdom, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth of the pre-partition era was very distant. It was much smaller. Yes, it had all the three historical capitals of Poland, Krakow, Vilno, and Warsaw. However, it was less than a third of the territory of the pre-partition Poland. It had, at the beginning, 27 million inhabitants and some 390,000 square kilometers. So much less than the old Poland, the First Republic, but about three times more than both the Russian Kingdom of Poland and the German Kingdom of Poland, which I have just described. Uh, but notably, it had some three million people less than the same territory before the First World War. And I stress it because First World War is largely forgotten in Eastern Europe. It didn't fit into the national or nationalist narratives of the great calamities of the 20th century because for Poles, Ukrainians, Jews, and some other peoples of Eastern Europe, it was a fratricide. That means Polish, Ukrainian, Jewish soldiers were fighting both in the Russian army, Austrian army, and the Prussian army. So it didn't fit very well. It's been dominated by much smaller, much smaller events of national legions, like Piłsudski legions or the Czechoslovak legion, who were, well, some three million inhabitants of the historical Polish territory was drafted to the German, Austrian, and the Russian army, and only 1% uh, of this number was in the Piłsudski legion. So it was much smaller in scale, but much, much better remembered. Uh, the country which you can see, its first task was to reintegrate the historical territories, the territories that greatly changed in the 19th century, being a part of the legal, economic, political system of the three different empires. And I would stress in particular belonging to three different economies. Uh, reintegration of Poland was an economic disaster. Western Poland lost markets in Berlin and Germany, and that was uh, 
agricultural well-developed Greater Poland, Wielkopolska. Between the coal mines and the steelworks in Silesia, a uh, tariff zone was erected. Uh, the textile industry of wood lost the great Russian market, and the price was independence. So Poles were happy, although the uh, GDP of the pre-1914 level was reached only again in 1928, few months before the beginning of the Great Depression. So from the economic point of view, the costs of the reconfiguration of markets after the destruction of great multinational empires of Central and Eastern Europe were, were substantial. Of course, there were also costs of material reconstruction after the destruction of the First World War. But this I would like to stress because first it's forgotten, it somehow doesn't fit with to the glorious national narrative, that independence <coughs> has a cost, and we can measure this cost in zloty dollars, British pound at that time, and so on. But certainly, most of ethnic Poles was ready to pay this price. And I stressed most of them, because certainly not all of them. It seems that for example, the reactions to the beginning of the First World War among the Polish-speaking population of the historical Polish territory was not necessarily completely alienated from the loyalty to the House of Habsburgs, House of Romanovs, or the King of Prussia. I would say that it was only the next war that made all Polish peasants into Poles. I mean, nationally conscious Poles. Integration of the economies, the legal systems, uh, of these three countries, different currencies. By the way, here you can see it. At the beginning, this Polish territory was using several currencies of the occupying powers. And uh, as please see especially this middle banknote, 10 million of Polish marks. This is a sign of hyperinflation of the early 1920s. And only then, after significant monetary reform, Polish currency restabilized, which was uh, uh, a major burden for the economy during the Great Depression. Which because in, it imposed de facto austerity policies against what the American or the German government was doing at that time. This country, let me go back to, to the map, this country not only consisted of historically three different regions, regions that the previous 120 years, more than 120 years, had remained in three different empires. It was also very culturally, religiously, and ethnically diverse. Well, not more diverse than the average East European country, because ethnic Poles made some 60 to 66 percent. We don't have exact figures, because uh, the data from the censuses, especially the census of 1930, are not fully reliable. Some people were made to declare themselves Polish, while they not necessarily were Polish, but still some 60% of the population was, was ethnic Polish. So uh, there was certain discrepancy between the model of the political regime, which was to large extent copied from France, like significant parts of the Polish interwar constitution, a uh, highly centralistic nation state with, uh, 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 with uh, unified administration, and the de facto nature of the state, which was a nationality state. And the tension between the ethnic diversity of, uh, of the country and the political model it took, and also certain political ideas of what a modern nation is, became the major political problem of interwar Poland. So if the integration of the legal systems, free economies, uh, 
uh, railroad gauge into one system of the Polish railroad was quite effective. The integration of citizens of different ethnic groups into one political Polish nation, this we can say to a large extent, failed. This applied even to groups that were dispersed, like the Jews, who didn't have any territorial claims on Poland, and some other groups had territorial claims on Poland. The eastern side of Galicia, where most of it uh, was contested between Poles and Ukrainians, virtually all of western Poland was a contested territory between Poles and Germans. This part of northeastern Poland was contested by Lithuanians, and actually Lithuanian government up to the end of the interwar period claimed that the city of Vilna, Vilnius, Vilno, this is one of the cities with many names, was the capital of Lithuania under temporary Polish occupation. So, uh, developing a stable national narrative that could incorporate groups like Ukrainians, Germans, or Lithuanians was especially challenging. But it didn't work also with the Jews who were largely dispersed and didn't have any territorial claims on Poland. Uh, in a desperate situation, Polish leaders tended to a solution which Rogers Brubaker uh, called the nationalizing state. Poland wasn't just a nation state, it was a state who was nationalizing its citizens, which meant Polonization policies towards Ukrainians, Belarusians, Lithuanians, uh, but not necessarily the Jews. Uh, and uh, ironically, among the young Jews, especially the generation that was born in interwar Poland, acculturation went very fast. At the end of interwar Poland, virtually all Polish Jews spoke fluent Polish, which was not the case, of course, at the beginning of it. In the city of Białystok, which, which made part of the Russian Empire, the second language of Polish, of Białystok Jews in the early 20th century was Russian. And the first one, of course, was Yiddish. So despite the acculturation uh, uh, of the 1920s and 1940s, there was no a success in political integration of the, of the minorities. So uh, we have certain discrepancy. Interwar Poland was a modernizing state. Its elite had a modernizing objectives. They wanted Poland not just to be strong, to be independent, to be sovereign. They believed that the only way to achieve these goals is to make Poland modern. And the, the idea of modernity, of course, was the idea of modernity of the 1920s and 30s, which meant centralization, industrialization, urbanization, uh, um, education, uh, especially at the, at the elementary level. And I need to stress that at the beginning of the interwar republic, in Eastern Poland, most of the population was illiterate. So one of the great successes was to teach this population through the 20-year pe uh, period of independence. At the end of them, only a minority, some 20% of them, was, was um, illiterate. And of course, many of them learned to read and write in Polish, the official language of the, of the country. Uh, this Poland disappeared in September 1939. Here we have a copy of the German-Soviet um, agreement from September 1939. This is not the most famous or infamous Ribbentrop-Mawotov Pact of August 1939. The original Ribbentrop-Mawotov Pact uh, planned to divide Poland, Poland along the Vist Vistula. 
So uh, Warsaw would have been like Berlin during the Cold War period with the German part of Warsaw and the Soviet part of Warsaw. Because Soviet army invaded Poland later than was expected. Soviet Union got only 50% of the Polish territory east of the Bug River, as you can see it here. And it was Germans who were left with the question that was stipulated already in the original Ribbentrop-Mawotov Pact, namely, what to do should we make a Polish state in the future? In the original agreement, both parties agree that they, are, they will talk about it later on. They didn't decide it in August 1939, which was a reasonable policy. They didn't know what may happen during the war. But they still took into consideration the idea of having a Polish state. But nevertheless, both countries claimed that the Polish state ceased to exist, which was a legal justification for the Soviet invasion, by the way. Soviet government claimed that the Polish state ceased to exist, which is, of course, untrue, and invaded eastern part of the territory. So for the next almost six years, we may say that there was no Poland again. Here you have Hitler's Europe. You don't see any country with the name of Poland. However, the problem is that there were many parallel Polands at the same time. None of them fulfilled the definition of a sovereign state, controlling a territory, having a nation, a population. But Poland existed under different forms. So first of all, the legal government of Poland remained remained in exile. Thanks to a clause of the Polish constitution of the 1930s, the presidents during war could appoint his successor. So Polish president who was interned in Romania could appoint a new president residing in allied France at that time. And this president could appoint a new government, government of General Sikorski, who first resided in France, and then after the, the defeat of France in 1940, moved to this country. So from the legal point of view, Poland as the state existed. It was just occupied. Initially, two countries, and then some allies of Germany, uh, claimed the opposite, but France, Great Britain, United States, most of the uh, interwar League of Nations uh, um, mm, recognized Polish government exile as the legal representative of the occupied Poland. In fact, London, we can say that London was the capital of Poland between 1940 and 1945. Uh, this country, this government, had the executive, the government of General Sikorski. It had a quasi-parliament, the Polish National Council. It had an army in exile. It had a navy in exile. It participated in the war effort of Great Britain and other allies. Uh, but it didn't control the territory. Uh, sometime later, there emerged another body which Poles called Polskie Państwo Podziemne, Polish underground state, which was even more extraordinary than the state in exile. Namely, it was underground administration, civilian and military, underground secret army, underground judiciary system, underground educational system, all of it existed under German occupation, to a lesser extent under the Soviet occupation, 1939-1941. And uh, the complexity of this uh, invisible state uh, testifies to incredible managerial skills of Poles. Poles are generally not famous for their managerial skills. But with proper motivation, as we see, uh, that was possible against one of the 
best organized and most effective states in Europe at that time that is Nazi Germany. So I think the, the test of managerial efficiency was passed uh, uh, extraordinarily. In terms of rank and file citizens of the state, what is important, it was a voluntary state. Only those who wanted to obey the underground authorities obeyed underground authorities. Well, yes, it was a state that was using violence against collaborators, not only against the occupiers, but also collaborators. So there was a way of executing certain decisions. But broadly, the state could do only what the population wanted to do. And this way, the state became an ethnic Polish state. Because largely, ethnic minorities of interwar Poland didn't join it, or were not welcomed, actually, at the beginning. So the 19th century tradition of the Polish independence movement, first romantic, then more nationalist, influenced the nature of the state. It was a secret network voluntary state of largely ethnic Poles. Uh, parallel to the state, which was invisible, Germans established another state. They called it general government. And here you can see it. Both Third Reich and the Soviet Union incorporated large parts of the Polish territory. However, the eastern part of the German zone of occupation was left with Krakow and Warsaw, was left as a, actually a German colony in Eastern Europe. It was very much a colonial institution, similar to the pre-World World War I German colonies in Africa, and in the sense also similar to the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, another colony that German administration was running in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, this state also had a currency, and notably, the bank that was issuing this currency was the bank in Poland. So the currency in use in the general government was the last evidence of the existence of a country called Poland. Of course, the governor general and the governor of individual provinces were Germans. Germans fully controlled administration to the lowest level. Actually, they preserved Polish mayors or deputy mayors, uh, village leaders at the lowest level, but under strict German control. They introduced their own legislation, their own penal code, and most importantly for us, they introduced a very colonial racial hierarchy of the population. The general government was an instrument of revolution, of the Nazi revolution, at several levels. In terms of uh, change of ownership, massive transfer of property from virtually all the Jewish property was nationalized, became the property of the, of the Third Reich, but also all major Polish businesses uh, and uh, property of anyone arrested or accused of uh, anti-German activity was becoming the property of the Third Reich. Plus, <coughs> we must mention massive private looting by German soldiers, officers, officials sent to Poland. Uh, some of them became famous. For example, Mr. Schindler, a good German, came to Poland to exploit opportunities of this colonial country using free Jewish labor um, and uh, uh, special conditions offered for ethnic Germans that were ready to operate in, the, in this occupied territory. So he's probably the best known German profiteer in occupied Poland. Uh, I would like to stress the territorial aspect of the Nazi racist hierarchy 
within this territory, Nazis established special zones. The best known zones are Jewish ghettos, formerly called the Jewish residential quarters, the largest of them being the ghetto of Warsaw. It, com it comprised only a few percent of the territory of the city and some 450,000 people, Jews from Warsaw and smaller localities around Warsaw who were deported. It was, uh, if Oxford is an island in an island, uh, Warsaw Ghetto was an island of horror in this horrible country called the general government in the horrible Hitler's Europe. Uh, but there were also other zones of inclusions, uh, districts of the cities, streets, tramways, restaurants, cafeterias, nur für Deutsche, only for the Germans. So there are areas closed as the ghettos for the Jews, there are areas accessible only for the ethnic Germans, and then zones for the rest of the population, which was stratified on a racist or ethnic basis. I mean to the very mundane, basic aspects of life. For example, food rationing system. Divided population into categories depending on the alleged ethnicity. And ethnic Germans, uh, food allocation was equivalent to some 2,200 calories per day, which is a daily requirement, as it was believed at the time for, a, for an adult human being. It was some 1,500 for ethnic Poles and 500 for the Jews. So certainly well, well below any level of, of subsistence. This is why uh, the Warsaw Ghetto and other ghettos in occupied Poland to survive had to smuggle food into. 80% of the food in the Warsaw Ghetto was illegal. And that was a consequence of the specific food rationing. And in other aspects, such as forced labor, career opportunities in the administration or police, uh, being ethnic Poles, being ethnic Ukrainian, ethnic German, largely determined the future of a person and a group. So uh, the, the most radical aspect of the Nazi uh, revolutionary policies was uh, genocide of course, namely genocide of the Jews, making Eastern Europe Judenrein. And I would like to stress that uh, what we now call the Holocaust began, began first as a policy against Polish Jews. Polish Jews made most of the victims of the Holocaust, out of some 5.5 million European Jews killed during the Second World War. More than 3 million were Polish citizens. They were first to experience ghettoization, and almost all the ghettos were established in the historically Polish territory. Terezinstadt, Terezin is a, is a case outside of this area. And also they were the first to experience the beginning of the final solution, the so-called final solution that is mass shooting in the summer of 1941, uh, which was combined with the, uh, uh, with the wave of pogroms between the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea. We have, uh, we have uh, well, several dozens of pogroms with substantial participation of the local population. In Polish case, the best known case is Jedwabne, a small town in the, in the Łomża region. Uh, this Polish state, the general government, was expanded after the German attack against the Soviet Union into Eastern Galicia, again nullifying Ukrainian dreams that the Germans may help them establish independent Ukraine. Actually, 
Stepan Bandera, a man who tried to establish a Ukraine government in Lviv after the German invasion was properly arrested and deported to the concentration camp to Sachsenhausen, where he remained to the end of, to the end of war. Uh, at the end of war in 1944, we have one more government emerging in Poland, coming into being, and that was the Polish Committee of National Liberation. It had the name of a committee, but it was a de facto government appointed by the Soviets to administer the central part of the pre-war Polish territory occupied by the Soviet army. So I need to use this long sentence to establish, to define what happened, because the, 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 the Committee for National Liberation uh, was declared to exist and issued its manifesto only when the Soviet army and the Polish army fighting alongside the Soviets controlled by Polish communists cross the uh, Kherson line, the Bug River. Uh, while Soviet, which is basically, this is the Bug River, the former border between uh, uh, German and Soviet zone of occupation, which coincides to a large extent with the line established by Lord Curzon. Uh, famous politician of this country um, uh, right after the, the First World War. Why is this important? Because while this government was not recognized by no one by the Soviet Union, it was a committee, it was given the Soviets uh, the authority to administer the territory, in particular to make the draft into the Polish Communist Army. Again, we are coming back to the question of, of manpower and labor used in the industrial wars of the 20th century. One of its first decisions was to cede half of the Polish territory to the Soviet Union. Just a few weeks after uh, its coming into being in July 1944, uh, it signed an agreement with the Soviet Union uh, defining the Polish, new Polish border, basically following the, the Kherson line, which meant that more than 45% of the pre-war territory was then annexed to the Soviet Union. Only later on, this decision was reconfirmed by the Polish provisional government established the following year, 1945, then with the approval of the Western powers and participation of Mr. Mikołajczyk, who returned from the Polish government in London to join this, this Committee of National Liberation. Uh, this, uh, the, the, pay, uh, the, the, national, the Committee of National Liberation, uh, very much like the government in London, it had its quasi uh, a legislative, a national council. It had an army, it had a security force, it had a foreign policy, which was recognized in addition to the Soviet Union by Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia at that time. It also had a currency. So it was quite a full-fledged state, but with unclear borders. Well, in fact, with an unclear Western border. Why it was so quick to recognize the annexation of Eastern Poland the question of what is the western border of this new post-war Poland remained open up to the Potsdam Conference of the uh, Great Powers and actually up to 1990. Uh, this is, sorry, uh, I haven't shown these pictures. The only pictures which are not maps or banknotes in my presentation. This is my hometown, Warsaw in 1945. And I would I'm showing this uh, because uh, to show the, how radical and how revolutionary were German policies in occupied Poland. And in the effect, the main product of this revolution was destruction. Uh, human losses, material destruction, disruption of the economy, 
uh, I said that the Poland restored after the First World War was not very similar to the old pre-partition Poland. And similarly, the Poland established in 1944-45 was not very similar to the Poland of 1939. In fact, if we believe that the state consists of territory, government, population, political regime, economy and culture, all of them were different. Here you can see the changes of the territory. This is the part annexed to the Soviet Union, to the Soviet republics of Lithuania, Belarus and Ukraine, which made almost half of the pre-war territory. And here is the compensation. <coughs> Actually, the argument of compensation was used in, during the negotiations of what should be the, the shape of the western Polish border. The net result was minus 20%. That means Poland was among the victors of the Second World War, but it was a strange victor because it lost 20% net, while Germany lost 25%. Uh, it lost many more people, but it's difficult to count them. Uh, the official estimate of the Polish war losses uh, was 6,027,000. And any statistician who heard the number immediately knew that this, this cannot be true. When you speak about such a big number as 6 million, you cannot be so accurate to give the figure of 27,000 at the end of it. And today we know that it was invented. We even know who invented the number. The number was invented by Jakub Berman, a Jewish communist, member of the Politburo of the Polish Communist Party, who thought that a precise figure would appear more reliable. Okay. The problem is, that, that was not, this figure didn't refer to the losses of Poland that entered into war in September 1939. This counted only the losses of ethnic Poles and Jews and excluded Ukrainians, Lithuanians, Germans, Belarusians, Roma, all other minorities that made about 20% of the pre-war Polish population. So it was both misleading, it was inflated in terms of the ethnic Polish losses and at the same time an underestimate, which retroactively excluded Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Germans from the Polish nation. So these were losses of communist Poland, the country that did not exist during the Second World War. So to my knowledge, Poland is the only country in Europe that does not have a reliable estimate of war losses. And we may, maybe it was 6 million, maybe 6.5 million, maybe 5.8 million. And we probably will never know it. And I believe that it tells us more about the nature of this war and the radical transformation this war brought than any specific number that we could have estimated. Surprisingly and ironically, the easiest to estimate were Jewish losses. Why? Because only a few Jews survived the war. So the calculation was simple. Before the war, some 3.3, 3.5 Jews lived in Poland. That was the largest Jewish community in Europe. After the war, about 300,000 remained alive. So basically, we can say that about 3 million Polish Jews perished during the Second World War. The problem is that some of them were Jews only for the Nazis. For example, in the Warsaw Ghetto, there was a Roman Catholic parish. So there were Roman Catholic Jews, an island, within the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw. Few of them, 
because assimilation in Poland in the early 20th century was very limited. But still, it tells us about a margin that was people who were killed as Jews or survived hiding as Jews, but before the war, they didn't declare themselves Jewish, were Christians. Some of them uh, even distanced themselves from, the, from the, uh, the Jewish origin. And they were certainly overrepresented among the survivors. Why? Exactly because of acculturation. Integrate, they had non-Jewish Polish families. As Christians, for example, they knew Christian prayers. They could much easier pass as non-Jews under German occupation. So, uh, in fact, we don't know how many Polish Jews survived the war and how many of them were Jewish before the war and how many of them became Jewish during the war as a consequence of Nazi policies. In fact, uh, Nazi uh, German occupation introduced a very simple, brutal behavioral definition of uh, who is a Jew in Eastern Europe. A Jew is a person facing death as a Jew. So even if someone was not a Jew by any civilized standards, facing a Jew, one behaved as a Jew. That means had to hide his uh, pre-war identity. Uh, as per ethnic Poles, Belarusians, Ukrainians, and Germans, we have no idea how many of them perished. And we cannot estimate it because of the changes of borders. Oh, sorry. Changing borders. Post-war Poland, the first census of 1946 established that Poland had some 24 million inhabitants, which is 11 million less than pre-war Poland, but in a very different territory. And out of this 24 million, some 2 million were ethnic Germans waiting for deportation, plus 1 more million of former citizens of pre-war Germany who were recognized as ethnic Poles, Polish minority in Germany. So, out of the pre-war population of, of 35 million people, only 21 million found themselves in post-war Polish borders. So some, a part of them disappeared due to war, genocide, uh, disease, uh, malnutrition, uh, starvation, all the calamities that fell on the bloodlands, as Timothy Snyder called this part of Europe. But some of them, uh, didn't relocate into the new Polish borders or didn't come back from the wartime migrations. And here I would, I would like to stress that in addition to, to mass killing that the Second World War brought to Poland on non-combatants and combatants, we also have mass population movements caused by both the Nazi, the German and the Soviet regime. The biggest group of these migrants were slave workers. Uh, some 2.8 million people were deported to forced labor, mostly to Germany proper, but also to some countries occupied by, by Germany. Uh, we don't know exactly the ethnic composition. In addition, there were people fleeing the war already in September 1939. We have some 150,000 people who escaped abroad. These are the men who then established the Polish army in France, and then some of them relocated to Great Britain, including my uncle, who spent the rest of his life in Manchester. Some of them were deported into the Soviet Union. Now we have a relatively accurate Soviet data about the number of deportees, but then a number of people escaped in the uh, summer of 1941, facing the German invasion. So calculating the number, calculating what happened to this population during the war is extremely difficult. They probably will never have uh, an, accurate, an accurate estimates. Uh, 
What we know is that post-war Poland had 312,000 square kilometers, and the Poland of today has almost exact uh, territory. It lost 77 square kilometers net. Its population declined dramatically, and in particular, some parts of the population. So while the general losses were about 20% of the population, urban population lost 50%. Why? Because Jews were mostly urban population. So 30% of the Polish urban population was Jewish, and they almost entirely disappeared. And in addition, 20% of uh, urbanites, non-Jewish urbanites also was lost uh, somewhere. We don't know if they survived the war or, or were relocated elsewhere. Uh, the name of the pre-war Polish state, the Republic of Poland, remained valid up to 1952. It was only then when the communists introduced the new constitution. Actually, Poland had the honor of having its constitution personally edited by comrade Stalin. We have a copy, Russian translation, with his handwritten notes on the margins. He corrected some clauses of the Polish constitution. And this constitution remained valid up to the 1989, and actually, up to the late 1990s. It was significantly amended in 1989, but some parts of it remained valid into the 1990s. Uh, so uh, the name of the country changed from the Republic of Poland into the People's Republic of Poland in 1952, but the political regime of this country, its territory, its economy, had already been uh, reconfigured in the previous years. Uh, we may divide the history of communist Poland in several periods. Uh, in fact, there were at least three communist Poland between 1944 and 1989. The first was Poland under communist rule, not yet communist Poland, but Poland under communist rule. And this is 1944 to 1947-48. At that time, we have, I mean, for Soviet standards, we have a relatively liberal regime. There is a civil war going on, there is a bloody terror, but still there are several political parties in Poland. After 1948, there is one party plus two satellites, fully controlled by the Communist Party. So this is the first Poland. It still has the name of the pre-war republic. It has a communist-dominated government. There is a legal opposition, which is gradually, through the salami tactics, destroyed, uh, uh, physically destroyed. Its leaders either are imprisoned or escape abroad. Then between 1948-49 and mid-1950s, we have the Poland of High Stalinism. Despite the fact that its name changed only in 52, we can call it the People's Republic of Poland. Actually, that was the most communist Poland of the communist period of Polish history. Uh, this country was made upon a Soviet model. Polish communists largely imitated the Soviet Union in economic policies, in cultural policies. However, we must stress, oh, sorry, here you have the, here you have the map of the communist bloc with this little Polish province over here. But there is one aspect of the history of communist Poland which is too easily overlooked, namely that Stalin did not incorporate Poland into the Soviet Union. Contrary to Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, or Romanian Bessarabia, which became the Soviet republics of Lithuania, Estonia, and so on, Stalin did not incorporate Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, or Bulgaria. 
despite the fact that, for example, Slovak and Bulgarian communists formally requested to be incorporated into the Soviet Union. And I'm pretty sure if Stalin wanted, if he made this decision, Polish, Hungarian, Czechoslovak population in the national plebiscite would overwhelmingly support, I would say 99% of voters would support and request the Soviet Union to be incorporated into the great family of the Soviet nations. Uh, that was important in all aspects of life. First of all, they wanted it or not, Polish, Hungarian, Romanian communists were nationalistic. They couldn't enter the Soviet Politburo. The highest level of the possible career was the Polish Politburo, Czechoslovak Politburo, Hungarian Politburo, and so on. And that was defining the perspective about thinking of the country themselves and the role of the party. So even in the period of the highest Sovietization and homogenization of the Soviet bloc, which is early 1950s, we see striking differences between individual countries. For example, in Poland, there was no equivalent of great purges. None of Polish communist leaders was executed like Slansky in Czechoslovakia. Władysław Gomułka, the first leader of, the, of communist Poland after the war, was arrested. He spent some time in prison, uh, but he was alive. When Stalin died, and then in 1956, when Stalin was condemned by Khrushchev at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Gomułka was alive and ready to come back to politics. And this is not an important difference. And these differences were many. Uh, from my field of study, my migration research, I was very surprised to learn how much Polish communists objected to uh, cross-border labor mobility. There had been a tradition of Polish workers working in Austrian and then Czechoslovak industry in Silesia. Uh, after the war, uh, beginning in 1948, it ended. Why did it end? Because for communist managers of heavy industry in Silesia, that was Polish labor. That means that was the property of the government. They didn't want to share it with the brotherly Czechoslovak government. So despite the socialist solidarity of all the Soviet bloc, they saw it in terms of national interests. They, want to, they wanted to extract coal, they needed labor, they needed miners, so they didn't allow Polish miners to work in Czechoslovakia. So we see it at a very low level of management of individual mines, factories, but at the same time we see similar processes at the national level. In effect, in effect, the communists established the most consolidated Polish state in history. It was not sovereign, but it was the most centralized, <coughs> unified, probably nationalistic, homogeneous, and militarized. So if we have the ideal of the right-wing nationalism of pre-war Europe, unified, centralized, nationalistic, homogeneous state, that was the communist Poland. Well, the problem was it was a satellite state. So claiming that Polish communists were nationalists must have a footnote. As one of them said, my homeland is the Soviet Union, our borders today are in the middle of Germany, and tomorrow they may be in Portugal. This is a quotation from the best-known Polish national Bolshevik, General Mochar, the head of the security service in the 1960s, incidentally of Ukrainian origin. So, uh, the 
preservation of satellite but separate state in Central Europe, including the Polish state, was for me the major factor shaping the history of communist Poland. Interestingly, interestingly, out of this several aspects making a country, territory, population, economy, culture, the most fragile, proved to be the most persistent. As you see, let me come back to this. As you see, territory was completely different. Population was not just smaller, it was much, homo much more homogeneous. Uh, economy was destroyed by the war, physically destroyed, but also markets as institutions were destroyed, and then underwent the rapid industrialization beginning in the late 1940s, uh, less successful collectivization drive, and massive nationalization. I mean, communists nationalized virtually or, or uh, all enterprise except for the smallest one. Uh, a political regime was, of course, a complete novelty. Never before Poland had a regime called people's democracy. Uh, so what connected the communist Poland with pure Poland was culture. But even in this field, communists had far-reaching objectives of completely remaking the Polish culture. Uh, however, and this I would say is the intervention of Providence, that comrade Stalin died in 1953. Namely, they didn't have enough time to systematically implement these policies. And most clearly, this we see in their policies against the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church in Poland was under heavy pressure, repressed, several bishops were arrested, including the primate of Poland, Cardinal Wyszyński, uh, but it was not broken as it was in several other communist states. However, now when we have much better documentation, much more detailed historiography of the Polish Church in the 1950s, we can see that the process of penetration, uh, erosion of loyalty towards Wyszyński was really going fast. So possibly, if Stalin didn't die in March 1953, and Polish communists continued harsh anti-church policies into, let's say, late 1950s or early 1960s, the store of the great resistant heroic Polish church would have looked differently. Of course, this is counterfactual history, but this is to stress the coincidental nature of history in general. Yes, there was a lot of resistance. It was very strong, but a matter of luck, well, it was not lucky for Joseph Stalin, the fact that he died in 1953, but certainly it was lucky for the Polish church and Polish culture. Uh, the, so the, the first communist Poland was communist Poland before the name of the People's Republic. The second was, was the Poland of high Stalinism. And after 56, we see a new communist Poland, which is the Poland of so-called really existing socialism. I like very much this name because it means nothing. Really existing socialism basically is, this is what you see. It doesn't give us an equality of the socialism except the fact that it exists. And it shows a major problem with the theory of the post-Stalinist communist regimes. It's not clear what they were. They were a communist regime, they were dictatorships, they were authoritarian, but were they totalitarian? And there is an ongoing debate for the past 20 years or even more. Some leading scholars of leading adherents of the totalitarian theory claim that Poland never was a totalitarian country. 
contrary to Czechoslovakia or Hungary, for example. Exactly because purges were more limited, church remained relatively independent, a collectivization failed. Well, even if Poland was not totalitarian in 1953, it certainly was post-totalitarian in the 1960s and 1970s. That means even if we assume that the conditions of totalitarianism were not met, and totalitarianism is always fragmentary. There's nothing like a fully totalitarian, fully total totalitarian state. It's always fragmentary. And Poland was less totalitarian than other communist states. But Poland of the 1960s and 70s, a crucial component of the Polish realities of this really existing socialism is the remembrance of the Stalin era. And I would say Polish regime could have been relatively liberal comparing to Czechoslovak or is German. Exactly because in the back of the heads of millions of Poles was the memory of the wartime destruction and then the horrors of the late 1940s, early 1950s. Uh, we can debate if 1980, the emergence of solidarity movement and the martial law is a watershed. Was there a fourth communist Poland? Some people claim that the communists in Poland changed significantly and certainly social attitude changed. That means the practice of governing a country where 10 million people had belonged to an anti-communist movement were different than the practicalities of, of running the same country five years before. Uh, so even if it wasn't, certainly the patterns of governance was very, were very much different than in the 50s, 60s, or even 1970s. And in particular, a peculiar feature of this Poland of the 1980s is that that was a highly personal dictatorship. Namely, the center of the rule of communist Poland was the body of General Wojciech Jaruzelski, who was the key person in all decision-making circles. So it was no longer the collective leadership of the Politburo, but the individual dictatorship of a general who had not made an apparatchik career as other communist leaders in Central and Eastern Europe, who made a military career and then only jumped into the Politburo at a relatively late stage of his, of his age. So uh, we see peculiarities of Poland within the Soviet bloc and peculiarities of Poland of Jaruzelski when compared to the Poland of Gomułka, uh, Gierek or Bierut in the 1950s. Finally, we have this uh, last Poland, the Poland of today. Uh, this is actually mapped from not from the 20th century, but from the 21st century when Poland is already a member of the European Union. And comparing to other dramatic changes, the shift from communist Poland to the Third Republic uh, is the most limited. Same territory, nothing changed. Population is stagnant, despite mass emigration to this country, still almost the same number of Poles remain in, in Poland today. Uh, what changed radically, and the change was revolutionary, were the rules of the game, especially in the economy, but also in politics, and in fact, in all aspects of life. And this I understand when I try to explain what was my life in communist Poland 30 years ago to my children. The most basic things are most difficult to explain to them. For example, uh, that there was almost nothing in shops. And they say, you mean Tesco was empty? <laughs> okay, so this is a kind of challenges of comparative analysis of Poland of today 
and communist Poland. Actually, comparative analysis of communist Poland and pre-Second World War Poland is easier because you have this dramatic territorial shift, dramatic population changes, and so on. Here, changes are less visible, but uh, equally, uh, equally profound. Uh, what I would like to stress speaking about this new Poland is that we take it for granted that its borders didn't change. It's obvious. But please note that that was highly unusual. In 1989, Poland had three neighbors. Soviet Union, Socialist Czechoslovakia, and the German Democratic Republic. Three years later, no one of the states existed anymore. Now Poland has five neighbors, and of these neighbors, only one country, the Federal Republic of Germany, had existed before 1989. Okay? This shows the relative stability of Poland in Central and Eastern Europe. A country that didn't fall apart, was not absorbed into another country, has the same territory, population, infrastructure, largely built in the 1970s. So uh, a peculiar stability of Poland, some people claim, is a consequence of the dramatic shifts after the Second World War, namely ethnic homogenization and relocation to the West. However, I would like to remind you that the Western border of Poland was finally legally confirmed only in November 1990. From the West German legal perspective, the Eastern borders of the Third Reich remain up to 1990. And if you happen to see a German school atlas from the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, you will immediately notice that there is a border of the Third Reich running across Polish Silesia or Pomerania with the cities of Breslau, Stettin, and Danzig. Well, Danzig being a free state, but Stettin and, and Breslau belonging to this strange territory. So our understanding of inevitability of this smooth transition in territorial terms from communist Poland into independent Poland may be a little bit misleading. Uh, actually, from this point of view, we should mention 1970s, the Polish-German agreement of December 1970, and the Helsinki agreement, which were the two substitutes of a peace conference for Central and Eastern Europe. In 1970, Poland and West Germany established diplomatic relations, and West German government recognized the western border of Poland, but it was not the eastern border of Germany. There remained a strange legal object called the Third Reich, and the fate of this legal object could have been solved only by the great powers which happened with the German unification in the 1990s. Okay, now let me give you a few comments about, uh, about all these changes that you have seen here. First of all, so much has changed in a very short century. So why are we so sure that there was and there is a Poland? What made Poland appear and reappear on the maps again and again? Only today we can think that was obvious. It was not obvious. It certainly was not obvious in 1914. It wasn't obvious in 1918. It wasn't obvious in the late 1940s. Poland could have re-emerged as the Soviet Socialist Republic of Poland, together with Lithuania and, uh, and other countries. So it was a process of consolidation of Poland and recognition of Poland as a stable element of the political map of Europe. What we see at the end of it 
Is Poland member of the European Union and NATO, probably safest in its history for the past 300 years? But at the same time, Poland, which shares its sovereignty with European Union to some extent, Poland, which is much more decentralized than it was in the communist period, but also in the interwar period. Poland, which is, despite its cultural homogeneity, increasingly diverse in the lifestyles, opinions, form of religiosity of its citizens. And also Poland, which is much more open, well, excuse me, the uh, sociological newspeak, to transnational phenomena. Namely, the borders remain where they were, but the natures of the border changed dramatically in the past 25 years. And now, one of the problems of contemporary Poland is how many Poles are there in this country? And maybe there is half a million of them more than we estimate, or half a million less. Okay? If there is half a million less, they live in this country. Ireland, Sweden, but they are still formally residents of Poland. Some of them pay taxes, some of them keep their families. So the understanding of what does it mean to belong to a territory has been changing. You may have a family in one country, work in another country, pay taxes in a third one or nowhere. Uh, you may have uh, emotional affiliation no longer to a nation state, but for example to your city. You may be more a Warsawian or Wrocławian than a Polish nationalist. There are new identities that historically coexisted, but for this period I was presenting were dominated, dominated by the nationalist interpretation of, of the identity as an exclusive identity. Uh, coming back to the story of lemurs that I started with, the problem was not in the fact that some lemurs had a different definition of what is Lemuria and where the name of Lemuria comes from. But in the fact that they were accusing lemurs of different opinion of treason. Small lemurs claimed that big lemurs were traitors. Big lemurs claimed that small lemurs were traitors because of the different definition of where the common identity was coming from. It seems that the solution to this problem, which is emerging, is appearing, is parallel or multiple identities. Yes. Maybe Lemuria is called Lemuria because lemurs at the moment settled in this country. Or lemurs are called lemurs because they have settled in Lemuria at a given point. So what? That was the answer of my son, 18 years old, now in the final class of the secondary school, when I told him the story of lemurs when preparing to this lecture. And he had problems understanding. He's a smart boy, but he had problems of understanding why the lemurs hated each other. For me, it was obvious why the lemurs, the big lemurs and the small lemurs hated each other. For him, it's not clear anymore. Probably, he and his generation will have other reasons to disagree and probably hate each other. They will find, they may find a reason, but it's not going to be the reason that the lemurs had. Thank you very much.